Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Writer's Block Podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Havlin. Tonight's episode brought to you by Crumpled Up Paper. There's almost nothing you can't do with it. My guest is Mike Sachs, a writer and editor for Vanity Fair. Fancy. Mike has also worked at the Washington Post and written for The New Yorker, Time, Esquire, GQ, The New York Times, and most importantly, Mad Magazine and Cracked. But most, most importantly, Mike is responsible for what I boldly consider to be the print equivalent of writer's block, the books And Here's the Kicker and Poking a Dead Frog, both compilations of interviews with today's top television comedy writers and both indispensable tools for the aspiring comedy writer. Seriously, you should buy them both and then not dispense with them. Let me be the first to say I like Mike. He's a positive guy. He knows the hard work it takes to become a successful writer, but he's confident and upbeat about the opportunities available to those who put their heads down and work hard. And there's a name for those people. It's blockheads. That's right. I'm looking at you. You can't see me looking at you. This is a podcast. But just know that I am. I'm definitely looking at you. Nice shirt, by the way. Mike and I talk about his background, his start, and some of the more useful lessons he learned along the way that will hopefully also be useful to you. We talk about the benefits and potential pitfalls of writing with partners, the importance of having unusual interests and leading a well-rounded life, and a few different ways to honestly examine your work and hopefully find potentially small but not insignificant flaws before you submit it. But because I'm vain and insecure, perhaps my favorite part of this interview was when Mike complimented me. I'm digging your interview style. It reminds me of Dick Cavett. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's not a bad thing. You know what? I mean, it's, there's so many interviews out there on TV shows that are so heavily formulated. I just like to talk, and I think you do as well, from what I can see, and I think it's interesting. It's an easy, it's a fun thing to do. Whether people like to listen to it, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but I hope you like listening to it. And speaking of it, let's get to it. This is episode 50. My guest is Mike Sachs. I'm J.R. Havlin. You're part of the writer's block now. Good choice. Oh, we, we want to talk about that right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so anxious to get it. <laughs> you, I, I like that you, we, you understand almost immediately how yeah. discombobulated this podcast <laughs> I is. I love it. No, no, that's a great podcast. <laughs> this, is how, this, this is how we start yeah, these no, things. You just kind of come in the good. middle. Come yeah. in the middle of a conversation. Tell them what you're talking about that you want to talk about so badly. Oh, I want to talk about Over the Edge, a 1979 movie, Matt Dillon's first movie shot in Colorado based on a true story that took place outside San Francisco about kids who were provided with everything except entertainment and what to do. This is pre-internet, of course, and they went wild. And in the movie, they <laughs> corralled their, their parents into a high school during a parent-teacher night, and they tried to light the place on fire. <laughs> it's a funny movie. It's, it's, it's upbeat in a lot well, of They ways. didn't corral them in there. Well, no, they went in there, but they then they locked them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The parents went in there for a, for a conference on what to do about these rowdy kids. Right, and the rowdy kids thought, you know what? No, we're going to show up and show them how rowdy we are. They locked them in there, stealing tubas, uh, going on the intercom. <laughs> stealing tubas. Yeah. There was one tuba. All right, one tuba. <laughs> Steal. I don't want to mislead people. All right. Well, if that's going to push them over the edge to watch the movie, let them think that mm. multiple tu tubas. Well done. Thank you. Let's uh, let's introduce our guest. I'm J.R. Havlin, of course. My guest is uh, Mike Sachs, author of books I have recommended on the podcast and recommend in person 
constantly. Uh, works that I've always, uh, I was somewhat disheartened to see were very similar to Writer's Block, and then I read them and realized it's just fantastic, and Mike was not angry that I had a similar podcast and and believed me when I said I didn't steal the idea from having read his books, but read his books afterwards and was very pleased with them. Poking a Dead Frog, and here's the kicker, their interviews, conversations with today's top comedy writers. That's what we do here. Well, top You and me, we're the guys. We're the uh, commandants. We're, we're, the, we're the team here. Yeah. We're the, we're the pinnacle. Of... You, your list is extensive is and it? extremely impressive. I mean, the, the I don't know. Well, you should have seen the names the I could get, get. these people. Yeah, really? I mean, even who could more, it be? Even more impressive, those I didn't get. Really? I mean, well, James Downey, Diablo Cody, James L. Brooks. Um, I mean, you have, uh, this. These are, these are from Poking Dead Frog, Amy Poehler. My favorite interview in here is Mike Schur. Wow, interesting. Some people don't like that interview. Really? Yeah. He's amazing. I, love I think him. it's just because I just clear everything he's talking about just oh, he's meant a, something to he's me. He's a brilliant guy. Yeah. Sweet, sweet guy. But yeah, they I don't know, like that one. Yeah, well one person in particular who's actually I interviewed for the book, he felt that he was that Schur was coming at comedy. Schur like like I know him that well. Like Mike Schur was coming at comedy through a very academic way that he studies comedy rather than it being in his bones, which I surprised me because I thought the interview went well and I thought his... Like, you mean you, the, the guy, the, the person you're talking about was saying that out of some other intimate knowledge of sure or just from reading the just interview? Just from reading the interview, he felt that he was coming to comedy at A plus B equals C rather, rather than it coming, it, it being in your blood and it being coming out naturally. Which See, was, that sounds like bullshit to me. Well, I disagree with that myself um, because you. I think everyone has to study it in their own way. You can't be taught it, but you have to teach yourself it. And the way that Mike Schur taught himself may be different than the way this guy taught himself how to write. Like, do you consider yourself a company? Do you, you work here at Vanity Fair? I mean, right. or you're, you're on contract with Vanity Fair. Yes. I, and I most of your pieces, are they... Comedic? I mean, do they ask you to put a spin on those? Or? No, they're usually pop culture related. Okay. No, the the reason I started with these books was it was just an excuse to talk to people that I wanted to talk with. Right. And in, in the first book, I interviewed Larry Gelbart. That is exactly why I started. Dude, we have a lot in common. Right? Well, Larry Gelbart, like, I, I, he's the type of person, and, and these older guys, just from personal experience, they will get back to you within an hour by themselves. I'm still waiting to hear from a lot of 20, 30-something comedy writers. But the older guys, they always get back on their AOL emails. It's always <laughs> All right, take it easy. Oh, I have... <laughs> all right, relax. All right, let me, let me go further. Have 40, one at AOL. 46-point font. You know, very large font. <laughs> They'll get Just back to Just to make it good for the person on the other end. You yes. Don't want to, you don't want them to strain? Uh, no, they're sending it to me in 46-point yeah, font. Yeah, that's what right. I'm talking about. And I, I found that very endearing, the fact that Larry Gelbart would get back to me within the hour and say yes to that interview. Like yeah, that, that, that alone was worth that book. Now, a lot of those people that I, that I interviewed, Irv Brecker, who was 96 years old, wrote for the Merckx Brothers. Oh, God, fantastic. So good. It was like talking to someone who knew Babe Ruth. I, I love mean, that stuff. I love it. And, you know, someone who went to get a... Uh, corned beef sandwich with Groucho Marx. Like, yeah. how great is that? I, and you I, get to and you get to I sit get there and to interview that him. I, I, that's there used to be a, a sports writer in D.C. named Shirley Povich, Maury Povich's father, and he knew all the ball players from the twenties and thirties. 
and he was around until about 10 years ago. So you would ask him questions, and he would know, he would have personal stories about each of these players. Lou yeah. Gehrig, Babe Ruth, amazing stuff. And, you know, a bridge to another time is gone when they pass away. When Irv Brecker passed away, when Larry Gelbar passed away, um, that bridge is gone. So just to be able to speak to these people, especially the older ones, um, you know, to talk to Larry Gelbart about being a kid, a teenager, and writing jokes to support his family. His father, father was a barber. And for, them, for him to then write jokes for Bob Hope and then for uh, Sid Caesar and then to create MASH and then to work on Tootsie. You know, these are, these are stories that you are just going to be gone. I'm not saying that he, he never told anyone else it, but I was just interested to hear from his own mouth. Very early on, one of my earlier episodes was with a guy named Gene Parrott, who was... Oh, yeah. Um, he was the yeah. head writer for Bob Hope during yeah. the USO tours. Right, right. And he, he was an EP on uh, uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, and yeah. I knew in my head I wanted to talk to one of these guys. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we started talking and the whole interview, go listen to it. I can't remember the episode number. It's so good, and it was just such a thrill and such a joy to talk to somebody who was really there in the middle of creating these things that you loved and that influenced you so much. And these guys are monsters. They're joke monsters. I mean, how many jokes did that did Gene write over the years? I mean, probably tens of thousands, right? You had to produce so at least like five hundred good ones, right? (laughs) But that's not bad. Minimum, bare minimum. But these guys work for a living. Now, now, Irv Brecker was telling me that, too. He said, I don't understand how spoiled, you know, people don't know how spoiled they are now in comedy that they have to write one 30-minute episode a season. He said, I used to oh, write yeah, yeah. 20 to 30 30-minute right, yeah. episodes. Now, I don't know how good they were, right, but right. the fact that he did it is... On, uh, a, on, a, on an electric typewriter. Too. On an electric typewriter, but literally to support his family when he was you know, growing up in New York City as a teenager. Just the gumption and the streetwise aspect of it all, too. Right? Gumption. Mm. Mm. But what you were saying, too, about people not really caring. I mean, I think if Groucho Marx came back today, I don't think the majority of people would care. Now, the people who would care would really, really care. Like, you know, for me to talk to someone who wrote jokes and, and was the only single – was the person to only write – have a, a single byline on a Marx Brothers films. The rest of them, S.J. Perlman, all the other movies had multiple bylines. Like that to me was just astonishing, but I think you're right, and I think that that's what sort of surprises me in comedy, and uh, I see it too in sports. A lot of people in in it professionally don't know the background, you know. Um, a lot of people I know in comedy won't watch black and white movies, won't watch silent movies, won't watch them. I mean, that seems ridiculous. Well, it, it seems like a like a, like a character flaw that goes beyond your your, just your no, studying of a of comedy. Well, there's no interest, it seems, um, because. Yeah, but like the Philadelphia story, I mean, like you can't get somebody to watch a Philadelphia. Well, story. Well, I, I can get someone to, but you know, I I knew a lot of friends that just wouldn't watch it, and the people who are into it, like Bill Hader, is really into it. Yeah. You know, he really knows his stuff. But a God, lot of he's people, he's a good actor, man. Oh, he's amazing. I, what, the Skeleton Twins, amazing. Like I was really, I was genuinely surprised how impressed I was by that. Did you see his um, documentary series? No. Oh, it's fantastic. He does it with Fred Armisen. Um, and it's a, a mock documentary series where they do um, takeoffs on uh, the sales, or not the salesman, but um, Grey Gardens. Yeah. Um, all these classic Oh, docu- so that story between the, of the woman. Yes, and the, right. Yeah. And they also do a fantastic fake documentary about a, um, a rock group in the 70s called the Blue Jean Committee. 
Yacht Rock in the South. That was the name of the, the That group. was the name of the group. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how you used to name those groups. And it was so what, what name does that remind me of? Uh, what group? Average White Band? No. <laughs> they always some, had three there's, names. There's some other thing that's like committee or something like that, but that's funny. That's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's a yeah. great... Stupid name. Stupid name, and there's a backstory to how it happened. But yeah, yeah, Fred sure. Armisen and, and Bill Hader were fantastic in it. That's like the best. Wait, so what's it called? It the uh, I forget what the documentary series. Is Netflix or something? Yeah, or? It, you you can see it on IFC. So tell me, uh, uh, you you've written other books. I'm I'll just I'll read uh, um, your wildest dreams within reason is mm-hmm. a, um, I have not read this. Okay, yeah, yeah. sorry that I haven't. No, no, most people haven't. And sex. Our Bodies Are Junk, co-written with a couple of people, including Scott, our friend Scott Jacobson. Scott Jacobson, Todd Levin, who now writes for Conan, Rob writes for Conan, um, Jason Roeder, who's uh, head of Onion, and Ted Travelstead, who is out in California, stand-up and writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a big group, an impressive group. Too. Well, speaking of the Blue so Committee, guys? we were called the Pleasure Syndicate. The Pleasure Syndicate. Yeah, right? yeah. Why so many guys? Well, we used to write a lot together for Radar, GQ, Esquire, that okay. sort of things, and we just work well together. And I thought it seems it was, like so many people. Did you split up? The... Yeah, we each had different chapters. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was like you know, I, I suppose it was like similar to working on an Onion book, where there's a lot of contributors, but there was one or two main editors, and who were in charge. Right. But we were all in charge in the end. But I, it was just a fun experience, um, and we, we all got along really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you work like you would work with one person on one thing and did you work with every all all other five people at one point or another during yeah the we all we all work with each other it was just like all right you take this chapter on masturbation you tape it on you take it on blow and not, would you then would you then run it by the other guys and they yeah yeah, try yeah. it was they'd... it was final sign off on everything but we, we we have the similar sensibility which is very rare and so there was no problems it could be yeah, a, yeah. it could have been a major problem but we got along very well right it's interesting. The um, I, I can't remember where I heard this. It was uh, about uh, Monty Python and their writing. Um, That's fascinating. You know, so they have yeah, their yeah. teams, right? And they had different styles. So like one, I can't remember who was who, but it, it's reflected in their material. One one of those two groups, those two teams, often wrote grand scale things out right. in the out in the countryside, right. and another one would do something <laughs> in a shop. Exactly. And so then right. what they would do right. is they would write their things and then give them to each other to fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> like the purpose of it was just to mess it up. And and that and that I think was uh, um part of how they ended up with those wild transitions of like, you know, somebody's in a shop but then they get their head cut, you know, at the end of the the sketch ends because they get their head cut off by a knight who then runs off into the next Right. Sketch. Now the problem with that is and that was a lot of based on schooling and they went to different schools the two teams but when when you bring them together it's going to produce good comedy potentially but it's a pain in the ass and you, you start hating the other people you know if you give something to someone that you love to mess up you're going to not like them after a while you know it's, it's just like giving someone your kid to watch yeah, and you, right. yeah but it produces different comedy yeah i see what you're with, with that said too there there's always going to be like god damn it, you took out this joke yeah yeah but you see that in anything. You see that in the Beatles. You know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. They, they weren't getting along in the end. But then what? They produced they great. Oh, you didn't hear about that? No. Yeah, this is rare. That they broke up? No, they're still together. Okay. Uh, they're called Beatlemania. Yeah. Oh, oh God, it was one. Yeah. It's called the Beatles. It's a button. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is fresh stuff. I don't know. If you can... I have other fresh stuff too. But like you know, they're they're gonna hate each other. But 
it's going to produce good music. And, and that's it's just that's the thing. Is it worth going through? Well, you know, and the reason that what gets produced well out of something like that is that there's suddenly honesty involved. You, It's hard for you as an individual writer to be able to say, like, I don't like what's happening here. I need to change it. Right, right. And no one wa- – well, honesty brings pain and people don't want to go through discomfort or pain. So they would rather be like, oh, I can't believe I'm still with this group. I'd rather be alone. Well, you can be alone, but this sometimes the work will not be as good. Oh, well, yeah. That's the question though. Do you want to go through that? You, know, you can produce beautiful things for people to listen to, but if you're fighting all the time and your life stinks and is difficult, then it just might not be worth it. I mean, you saw this too with Money Python, the stuff they produce after. Some of it was really good, but some of it was really, really bad. Yeah, right, right. Well, that goes with just about everything, but man, they did. Uh, it was a big influence for me. I'm talking to Mike Sachs, author or compiler. What do you call yourself when you do something like compiler this? Compiler sounds dirty. I, I like know, that. Yeah. yeah. Compiler? Compiler stuff. Compiled, you've yeah. compiled stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. Well, it's, it's more than compiling, yeah. it's, it's more than transcripts. <laughs> There's flow. There's Hopefully there's flow to this. <laughs> I didn't mean to belittle it at all. Uh, poking a Dead Frog and also And Here's the Kicker. Pick those books up. We're going to come back, talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about Mike and how he got started doing what he does. And we're going to talk about the movie Over the Edge. Over the Edge. Yeah. Love that movie. All right. We'll be right back. So you still out there working all by yourself on that project? Good, keep it up. But don't rule out getting a little help or getting involved in a project with someone you think you can work with. At the very least, you can bat around some ideas and see if anything worth pursuing comes out of it. Two or three or four minds are almost always better than one, if for no other reason to force you to see your creative decisions from another point of view. Now let's move on to Mike's background and some of those lessons he learned. You're listening to Writer's Block Podcast. My guest is Mike Sachs. that it? Are we back? Can you tell me? Are you here? What? Me? Yeah. I'm here, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Good. That's Don't important. Don't scare me. That's... It's important. You frighten me. I, uh, my vision is going... It's bad. My, you okay? Uh, I don't want to say yes. You look shaky. Thanks. Um, I'm here with Mike Sachs, poking a dead frog, and here's the kicker, plus other things, plus all the other work that he does. And let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, that before we get into the movie. What did you study in school? I was an English major. I went to Tulane in New Orleans. So did you? Did you? You read a lot. You did a lot of. Did you do a lot of your own writing? I basically do the same exact thing now that yeah. I did then. Which, wow! How about that? Yeah, it's uncommon. Not as well, but okay. the same. <laughs> I, I like to do about five to ten things, and that's about it. Okay. But I like to do them all well. You know, I like to read. I like to write. I like to exercise. I like movies. I like comedy. All right. And, you know, I like to walk around cities. So that what I did then is what I do now. Yeah, you're in the right place. It was interesting. I was also a part of the radio station. Music is, is what I like as well. I was oh. part of WTUL New Orleans. Once received a death threat at 2 a.m. Really? For what? Was, well, was, Who, was, what were you playing? Well, that's a good question. It was an alternative. Beatlemania? Worse. It was an alternative station. And I grew up in the 70s and 80s listening to depressing music including uh, Gordon Lightfoot. So I was playing a song by Gordon Lightfoot. You'd think with a name like Lightfoot, it would be, you know, a little bit more upbeat, you know? Not this guy. No, yeah, this, no, he's I a, know. He's yeah. a real Canadian downer. So yeah. I was playing it, and someone <laughs> called up better. and said, if you ever play that again, I will kill you. And he meant it. He was not kidding around. <sighs> so weird. Yeah, I know. But, um, yeah, I was involved with the radio station. Maybe and... Gordon Lightfoot killed that guy's father or something, you know? You know what? He did. 
It's a Canadian thing. It's yeah, <laughs> Rocky Mountains. You ever heard about the Rocky Mountains? No. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> I, I I can't get into it now, but it's complicated. But yeah, I used to be on the radio station. Used to like movies and used to just you know, sit in my room, read and write. That's what I did. And when so when you came out of college, what was your first job? Did you did you get right into uh, being a writer? Um, well, yeah, I was broke and I was, I started writing and I, and I, I was working in a record store in New Orleans and then I moved back up to DC, Virginia, where I was working in Cantmill Records. Where'd you grow up? In, um, Northern Virginia and okay. Maryland. Right. And, um, I worked in a record store called Cantmill Records, which was the, uh, record store that competed with Waxy Maxis, which was a record store that Patton Oswalt worked at. Oh, really? How about that? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you didn't know him though? No, no, I didn't know him at all. There was quite a few uh, stores. But I worked there for years, and I loved it, but wasn't making much money. So then, you know, I was writing for Mad Magazine, Crack Magazine. But I had to write for Mad under a pseudonym because I was writing for Crack Magazine. They were furious about that. Mad Magazine hated, hated, hated Crack Magazine. Sure, yeah. Because they, they stole Don Martin, you know, Don Martin. They took uh -huh. they, Crack took him. They paid him more money and gave him the rights to his, to his work. So Mad Magazine was furious with that. So they saw they had an intern whose job it was to go through Mad Crack magazines and look up bylines. And if they noticed a byline that was also writing for Mad, they would get very upset. So an editor called me one day and said, listen, I can't tell you who to write for since you're freelance, but if you continue to write for Mad Crack and you want to write for Mad, you're going to have to write under a pseudonym, you're going to be paid less, and you're not going to be invited on the Mad Vacations, which I could give to, huh. you know, yeah. nothing about I did care about seems the money. Like, seems like a big thing. Then. I dangle it out there, though. Like, I'm curious about the mad vacations. Well, have you heard about those? No. Okay, well, in, in the, the years that mad was really going strong, they would take out, if you were a freelancer, writer, or illustrator, and you had a certain amount of published pages, I forget what the amount was, maybe 40 a year, they would take you on a trip, and it would be all, it would be William Gaines and um, Frank Jacobs and Al Jaffe and all the mad writers you know the usual gang of idiots and they would go to paris they go to italy one year they went wow. to haiti to visit the one subscriber on the entire island who subscribed to mad magazine that was sent to haiti it was sent to haiti yeah <laughs> and um oh, I, is that the year you went i didn't i never went oh, never went I wasn't invited. because i would i would assume it's sort of like let's say you're working there and the mad trip is to you know uh, Italy, and then the next year the mad trip is to Paris, and then you finally mm -hmm. you you're like I right. got to get in on one of these. I'm going to work my ass off. Yeah, I get on the mad trip, and they go to fucking Haiti. Go to Haiti, right? <laughs> a lot better in theory. Right? Yeah, yeah. But here, that's the type of thing too. Like I wouldn't want to go on those if I was paid a million dollars. I don't want to go with twenty other dorky writer. You know, I think you'd do it for a million, Mike. Come on, I do it for half a million. <laughs> I okay, but not a million. I wouldn't go to too Haiti much. I for think a I'm getting bought. Yeah, no, I'm, I can't be bought. No, but it didn't ever strike <clears> me as being the type of thing I would want to do anyway. I guess it was a big thing in the '50s and '60s. You know, you left your wife and family for a week and traveled and just dropped jokes all week. But by the time I came along, I just didn't need that. Yeah, right. What I did need was more money, which they didn't want to pay me. So I, I started writing format under a pseudonym, J. Michael Shade. Uh huh. And um, that was my mad pseudonym. Did it take you a long time to come up with a proper pseudonym for yourself? Uh, I, I came up with it. I won't even tell you how I came up with it. It's just so obnoxious. One day you will. It's so academic. I won't do that. Uh-huh. Okay. But, um, yeah, it didn't take me long, and it just felt right, and that's what I went through. 
Okay, great. Yeah. I don't think it is great. I think you're smi- You're faking your smile. You're not even interested about no, it. No, I, I, J. Michael Shade is as good a pseudonym as any pseudonym that, that you know, we all have our own reasons. Let me, it's just, it's based, kind of a famous author used this reference in a book of his. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell you. That. It's just too silly. Too stupid. Which reminds me a little bit about the Mike Schur interview talking about uh, uh, Infinite Jest. That's right. Yeah. That's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, which we will, which we will get to. That's in uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, poking a dead, dead frog. frog. So you're working at the magazines. So you're well, freelancing. Yeah, just freelancing. working in a, in a record stores. And were you do? Were you? Did you have aspirations of television writing? What were you? Yeah, what, were you, I what wanted, was your goal? My goal point? was TV writing. When I <clears> was growing up, it was SNL and Letterman. That's what I wanted to write yeah, for, and yeah. I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anyone who knew any writers. So I thought it would be like a, a farm system, like a minor league baseball, where you produce great stuff for Mad, and then you would be called up to the majors. And I'll, that's not the way it works. Right. Um, and then later. Um, I began to like writing. There's a little writing. bit. There's a little aspect of that. In a it. little, you know, you know. You, people can recognize you from certain work, and then they bring you on. I mean, that's that's not unheard of, but that's not. Necessary. I wouldn't recommend doing that. <laughs> uh, Tim Carvel uh, uh-huh. started off McSweeney's and Entertainment Weekly. He's a fantastic. Writer. Yeah, I mean Daniel Radosh at. Uh, that's right. Uh, he, that's right. He had his. Spy I mean, magazine. he yeah, well, Spy Magazine, but he also had. A blog that he did. That's right. A great that, blog. Uh, um, and that was. Uh, that caught the attention of the Daily Show. Yeah, I don't think it's unheard of. I just think if you're working in a record store in Virginia, you're not going to be sought out. And this was pre-internet no, anyway. Yeah, right. You know, so it was just a way to get in and get my name out there. I didn't know how how to do it any other way. Well, you're also practicing. You're doing something. You're exactly you're getting the work ethic. Well, and you're practicing. understanding how these how how pieces get put together, how things get edited, and you know the the whether or not something has a purpose. Absolutely. I, t- I taught myself. And I, I wasn't out there, my, my name wasn't out there to the degree where I'm now ashamed of all that early things. And there are a lot of writers who are ashamed of that. I interviewed Adrian Tomine, the brilliant illustrator for New Yorker. Um, he has a new book out. And he started really, really young, 16, 17, and was, was putting out his own work. It was later published in Pulse magazine, the Tower Records magazine. And he was saying that he... His work is out there to be seen, and it's visible how he was growing, which is not always a good thing because he doesn't always. It's interesting for me as a reader to see how his work has grown, but he's sort of not completely happy with a lot of the early work. So I was completely out of the loop, and I just had to sit down and teach myself, uh, you know, through five, ten years on really how to do it, what I wasn't taught in school, and what I wasn't told to do, how to get published. And how to write a piece, and a lot of my teachers were didn't have to worry about that. They didn't have to hustle, and they they were writing for small literary magazines. But I don't think one of them had written for New Yorker, Esquire, or GQ, or Vanity Fair. So talk a little bit then about like what you did learn. I mean, what what were some of the turning points in like mm-hmm. those early training years, if you will, and where you realized you either realized this thing's going to help you. Or you later, you know, in the moment, or you later realized, oh, boy, that was that that was actually a big thing for me. Right. Well, there's a ton of things that I did starting off, which I look back on, and they're very amateur. I would copyright my work, which is a sign of being an amateur. No editor is going to steal someone's ideas. It's just not going to happen. Um, I would I would send in, instead of calling an editor, I would send it in self-addressed stamped envelope, and it will always come back. But, but these are a bit antiquated as well. But... Right. Well, this is... 
this is what I taught myself. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. This was pre-internet. Yeah, So right. I, I couldn't even... But as far as writing itself, that is something you have to do. You have to come to it fresh. And it takes a while to teach yourself how to do that. I can now write something, go to lunch and come back and know whether it works or not. But when I was first starting off, it would take about a year or so, you know, because you're so highly invested in it. Yeah. But there are a lot of tricks that I taught myself. For instance, if I was writing for Esquire or you know, whomever, I would write the piece... And then the final version, I would print it out, column size, the exact same as the magazine. Because when you do that, you come to it differently. You read it differently. Because you sort of memorize the positions of the words on the page when you print it out the same way. So I wanted to see how it would look in the final product. And um, I would come more as a reader at that point than the writer of the piece. And I also do that by by emailing it to me. When I email it to me, it would come back different. And I actually recommend that to, to to students, especially for starting out, you want to come at it as a reader as well as a writer. Yeah, and to do that, you often have to put it down for at least a, you know, a couple of days. Absolutely. And that is what you have to teach yourself. How long do I have to put it down for? Or is it the type of thing that it's not going, you're not going to come to it fresh? Do you need to give it to someone else? And if they give you advice, should you take that advice? Is it good advice? Is it bad advice? So all this sort of thing is what you have to teach yourself. And also what you teach yourself is... Then it becomes a matter of you're either a person who somehow over the years has developed the the kind of judgment that allows you to make good decisions in these situations or not. Absolutely. And that's the type of thing. It's like having taste. You know, or, or Do you put your clothes together well? Do you put your uh, bedroom oh, set together? I appreciate it. No, it was, I just threw this on. You look terrific, by the way. It's funny that you would bring it up, but I appreciate it. That wasn't even a question. I said, you look, that's, you put your stuff together well. It's very nice of you. Anyhow. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it does come down to taste. You know, you can put together a mixtape and you would love it, but you would give it to a friend and they don't love it. Now, does that mean that your style is not good? You know, you have to become comfortable in your own style. And it's also developing your own style. Larry Gelbart talked about that. Your style becomes what you can't write. So you have to understand, I think, as a young writer, that you may not be good at writing a New Yorker short story, but you may be good at writing about a comedy show. You know, there are strengths and weaknesses to every writer, and you have to, you have to find what you're good at and what hopefully entertains you and entertains a reader. And that takes time. Well, and I've told people this as well. Like, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, nobody would not agree with that. I often uh, uh, tell people that even when you're going to work, uh, when you're trying to get work somewhere, you, you obviously want to uh, submit, like if you're submitting something, you, you submit something that is a reflection of what gets done at the place that you're going to. But the last thing you want to do is rip out the part of yourself Absolutely. that's necessary to get the job. In other words, right. you... If you're out there just emulating what's being done, then there's nothing, you're not going to stand out in any way. But I think it's also a lesson, too, where if, if you're trying to fit in to such a degree that your comedy and your writing is forced, it may not be a good fit for you. And that happens all the time. There's plenty of comedy writers out there who are brilliant but may not be a good fit at a certain show with a certain sensibility. So that's another thing, too, you have to teach yourself that it's not always a bad thing to not be able to fit in. If, you're, if you have a very individual style and it doesn't fit in to what, what you want to do, then it may be time to move on. But it, it, you do bring up an excellent point. You have to play the game. You have to work within the parameters. Uh, you can't be totally out there doing your own oh, thing. Oh, yeah. It, it normally has to be a mix in order because, because you're going to end up working on a team. In, in, uh, in Poking a Dead Frog, Mike Shore talks about 
what a team effort team television effort. writing is, and it and it really is. And the more that you sort of like glom on to your own personal mm. contributions, the more the final product is likely to uh, um, be delayed, if not suffer. Right. You're you're producing, and you have to produce every day. And I mean that even goes for this here at Vanity Fair. We'll receive submissions of poems. Well, we don't publish poems. They may be great poems. And you may want to write a poem, but it doesn't fit into the scheme here. And that doesn't mean you're a bad writer. It just means that you're not playing the game. You're not being professional. And I would do that as well. I would send pieces that weren't applicable to magazines that, you know, that would never have been published. I just liked. And that's an amateur move too. So you know, if you want to write professionally, you have to be a professional and you have to know what goes into it. And if you're a head writer on a show and you're incredibly busy, you don't want to read a piece by a new writer that is totally off base. You, you want them to fit into the system and they, they have to they have to be in that system and work within that system. Otherwise, they'll never last. Right. All right. We're going to come back and talk about movies and books, very specific movies and books. Mm. And uh, uh, with Mike Sachs, you're listening to Writer's Block. Thanks for doing that. All right, time for the usual reminders. You can email me at writersblockpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, though I'm also accepting answers right now. But please put those in the form of a question. Follow us on Twitter, at writersblockpod. I'm at J.R. Havlin. Mike is at Michael B. Sachs. And of course, if it's young up-and-comers you're looking for, check out at Katy Perry. You can thank me later. Now for the thrilling conclusion of episode 50 and a full-on pitch for why this podcast and Mike's books might just be the only reference materials you'll ever need to become a paid comedy writer. Along with the internet, of course. Hell of a thing, the internet. Don't underestimate it. Is it great? I love it. Yeah. It's fun as hell. Good. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Every time. You were just talking about what you didn't have growing up that you think would have helped you learn how to be a better writer quicker or something? Yeah, I, I grew up um, and we, this is all for you and I, pre-internet and stuff. So it's a it's a different world. People have a lot more easier access to a lot. Totally more different things, world. Obviously. Yeah. But. No, I mean when I I love comedy and it it was a mysterious world for me. You know those who wrote books, those who wrote for SNL, those who wrote Letterman. I would look at the the, the end credits and just think, how does one get from here to and there? That those reference materials did not exist. People didn't, didn't really exist. care. Those those people didn't exist. No, it didn't. It was almost like joining a car a carnival or something. Like, where do you go? How does it happen? How do you get from here to the moon? You so, can't even find those people. It's like you know, but you could, tracking them down. It was, was impossible. impossible. No, you couldn't do it. And, and that sense of mystery was kind of nice in in a, in a way. At the same time, I wanted to know how to do it. So I would look for these books in the libraries. Now, the only books that I could find were either books about your show of shows or SNL. But as far as the business of it, the creative side, how to become a comedy writer, was nothing. And it sort of frustrated me as a kid. Uh, I wanted to read about um, the Letterman writers. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to read about the writers for Cheers and, and, and all the shows that I liked. But it just wasn't out there. So when I had the opportunity... To interview these people, I thought it'd be a good thing to write a book that I go to the top. How do you, how did you do it? How did you go from this to then creating Mash? How does that happen? I was genuinely curious, and um, no one was interested in that book. This the first book in here's a kicker was rejected twenty five times. 
it was only accepted because I had a friend at a small publisher in Ohio. He was an editor at McSweeney's, John Warner, who pushed it through. Never would have happened. And actually, the second book, no one really wanted to publish that one either. The sensibility of publishers and editors are they're different than ours when it comes to comedy. Well, it might be. I, I can understand that the, there's a there might be a limited audience f- who would really get actual useful information out of it. But I would assume that uh, if you're not fascinated by the idea of the content of this of these interviews, uh, that if you picked it up and read it, you would find yourself fascinated by it. Yeah, I, that was my intention, and I hope to be that way. I wanted it to be historical pop culture, Americana, not just uh, straight-on comedy. And also just a lot of this advice is hopefully how to achieve success in any occupation. But I just didn't know. It, it, it didn't exist out there. But I, I also didn't want to go out there and write a book uh, through my eyes. This is how I did it. Because, quite frankly, who cares how I did it? I did my share of reading these books that are set up to show you how to write a screenplay and to show you how to write a... And they're helpful, but they're very academic. And the difference between that and um, your books and, and this podcast is that I find it far more helpful rather than to have somebody teach you to do something, have somebody tell you how they did it and you learn from that. Because if you can't learn from that, then you probably can't be taught. That's right. And not just anyone, someone who did it to the top of their ability and the top of their occupation. I mean, you can't get much higher than Irv Brecker, Larry Gelbart, and these guys. These aren't people who are teaching comedy in in colleges. Uh, These are people who made a living at it and were were hustled and were on the streets. You know, I, I took some courses when I first came out of college taught by uh, screenwriters who wrote uh, maybe one script or a part of a script for Murphy Brown or whatever. Yeah, and well, these aren't useless things, but they're limited. They're not useless things, but at the same time, if you, if you have to make a career out of teaching what you would rather be doing, you know, these people would have rather been comedy writers, and they're back in D.C. teaching about comedy. It's just not a bad thing, but I don't know if that's as valuable as going to um, a top writer, to um, you know any of these people in the books, who who actually were out in the field, you know, who who were in the mud and you were out there doing this. Yeah, the behind the scenes stories are the are the reality of it. Mike Schur's interview was one of my favorites in here. Uh, this is uh, poking a dead frog. Mike Schur is the uh, um, was the the creator of Parks and Rec. He worked on The Office. He worked on SNL. He ran uh, he ran Weekend Update while he was uh, while it was Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon. Um, then now most recently created. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine with uh, my friend Dan Gore, who I worked with at The Daily Show. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine is, in my opinion, the best... It's fantastic. The, the, the best, uh, Everything uh, Mike has the worked best on sitcom on television great. right now. He hasn't worked on anything bad. It's Yeah, so it's it's amazing. And so you, it was interesting, because I said that, and you said that somebody else didn't like it because it, it was it was too scientific or something. It's, right. you know, one plus two equals three, A plus B equals C, whatever. Yeah. The What I like about so much of the stuff that he talks about, Mike does in the book, is that he's talking about the things that influence him. And the things that influence him have a very wide range. And right. That's, right. that's what makes, that's what makes yeah. your work interesting, but it also makes him thoughtful and that's what makes your work good. Absolutely. And, and what he was saying, which I totally agree with, is if you're a comedy writer, you should know about comedy, but you should know about a lot of other things, whether it's, whether it's serious fiction, whether it's nonfiction, historical, 
or if it's just living a life where you gain experience. It's not, you know, to, to achieve in comedy. That's what I do. I know. I can see that. I can see the sadness see, in, in your eyes. Wrinkles? <laughs> dripping the, the, down the wrinkles the in my face? Dirt on your pants. Or is that oh, pudding? No, oh, that's no, awful. It could be pudding. I'm going to say it's pudding. Oh, okay. Well, it's not even chocolate, which is scary. Mm. Um, yeah, but you should go out and experience life. And you, you can know every episode of The Simpsons, but that's not going to help you as a writer. And I think the great writers... Um, across the board, have experienced um, lives that have they they've used for their comedy, and and that's really the interesting thing about this book. Each of these people say, "Listen, I don't know what's going to work for you. This is what worked for me." Right. And across the board, you're going to have commonalities between all these things. Uh, you know, being informed about life, being informed about politics, the world, experiencing life. Um, it all comes together, and, and with all these writers, there's a lot of similarities. That um, that you see, which I would highly recommend young writers listen to, because these people are there for a reason. They they succeeded, and they're they're still hungry to succeed. That doesn't mean they're they're finished, but they're reason they're there for a purpose, and they figured out for themselves. And hopefully, you can too. Yeah, and then you just bring your own ability. Of to course, that. You, yeah. you know you could read the other things that you know. There's certain usefulness in knowing how something is supposed to be formatted. I mean, you have to know these things. You have to know the basics, but where the passion and the ideas come from, and you talk about living life and having different experiences. If you go take any any comedy show, take your favorite comedy show, get the writers' names, find out where they went to school and what they studied, it's all going to be different, varied, crazy, ridiculous, right. and you know, <clears throat> from finance to medieval history. And right. and they have these different experiences, and they're bringing those things to what they do. And when you put those people in a pot because they have something in in, in common, then oftentimes what comes out is great. That's right, and that, that wouldn't have come out if it was all the same people. No, and that's another thing I wanted to say. Like I was very much jealous of those who graduated from Harvard Lampoon when I was a kid because I, I wasn't going to Harvard. I was going to be on the Lampoon, and I thought that was a gateway into comedy, which I suppose it was for many years. But there is a way to do it, and you can do it. You don't have to – you don't – this isn't completely impossible. It's not even nearly impossible. If you put your head down and you work, you can get from A to B. It can happen. And I didn't know that as a kid. It was very mysterious to me. But I think now with all these opportunities um, and the Internet, there's – you can be tethered to, to success even if you're working in a garage in Ohio and you're, you're a 15-year-old girl. Yeah, right, right. Which is fantastic, and I don't think that, that – that, existed before it doesn't mean you don't have to put in the work but i think just to know that there's a chance that you can be read by anyone at any time is an amazing amazing thing um this has been great really appreciate it i think there's a lot of great stuff in here and we are going to now give very short shrift to um uh, (laughs) over the edge yeah to over the edge yeah so you want to save it for another time we i think i think we probably should I think we can just do a special episode. Oh my do, God. Will you do that? Will I'd you, love to. Let's do that. Okay, so we're going to, yeah, because. Oh, this is fun. I, yeah. I didn't, uh, um, not that I didn't expect to be able to uh, uh, have a, a good conversation with you for a decent amount of time, but it took me a long time in doing this podcast to realize, you know what, when you talk to people for an hour and a half, it's really hard to get that down to 50 minutes. And so it took me a while to be like, I just got to shut things down at a certain amount of time so that I don't have to do all this crazy editing. And what I would do is now I'd talk, but then I'd still be like, oh, no, we got to talk about this thing, yeah. this movie, and we wouldn't be able to give it near what both of us want to give this no, movie. I'm digging your interview style. It reminds me of Dick Cavett. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's not a bad thing. You know what? I mean, it's, there's so many interviews out there on TV shows that are so heavily formulated. I just like to talk, and I think you do as well, from what I can see, and I think it's interesting. It's an easy, it's a fun thing to do. Whether people like to listen to it, I don't know. In, it's somewhere in the thousands. <laughs> thousands, that's fine. <laughs> I've been listened to by far fewer people. I have, I have my army, my small army of blackheads. It doesn't matter how many, it's as many of the right ones, right? Well, you know, like, like you know, I, I think uh, if you want to be a comedy writer, if you're fascinated by comedy writing, uh, people who listen to Writer's Block, I think, uh, understand the uh, the benefits of it. And if uh, um, you are out there listening to this, which I hope you are, and you have not yet read, and here's the kicker, as well as Poking a Dead Frog by Mike Sachs, you would be silly not to run out and get both of these books. They are invaluable tools, I think. First person who listens to this that doesn't have the book that goes out and buys it and gets in touch with yeah. me gets a half-hour phone call. How does he get in touch with you? Oh, he's not going to talk to me. He's going to talk to you. Oh, for God's sake. Uh, now, you can go online, MikeBSachs at gmail.com. MikeBSachs, S-A-C-H-S. C-K-S. C-K-S. Why did I say that? Mike Sachs. Mike Sachs. Yeah, I'm born in North Carolina. B. B-E-E. Mike B, the letter Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. K-S. You bastard. No, that was an that was an accident. I'm not sure why. Okay, Mike, yeah, that was a genuine stupid. I accident. could see it. Yeah, <laughs> MikeBSacks at gmail.com. If you if you get in touch with Mike B E E, he won't get back to you. So the first the first person to get in touch with Mike B Sacks S A C K S. That's right. After listening to this, yeah. and and somehow Just give me a call at, at gmail.com. Email me and we'll we'll chat. E- email you it gets email you chat about whatever yeah about yeah. life I like Pro- talking with people the, who's read the who's read the book yeah. and then they get a half hour phone call with me you said me oh with or you. you you said you said me you I know but I was me. joking I didn't want oh. to do that for you no <laughs> I I will talk to you about comedy about poking a dead frog yeah just, great yeah I love it yeah yeah done love it do that get out race out and buy these things uh that's it Mike thanks very much we are gonna get together soon yes. to do a special episode of Writer's Block discussing the movie that Mike very clearly outlined. It, it, was, it occurred to me immediately that you're not messing around when it comes over the edge. Oh, I love this movie. And this time I'm going to come to you. You dragged your butt down here. I'm going to go up to where you are Fantastic. Time. To the podcast dungeon. And I don't, you have to where, visit the podcast dungeon. Where would this be? This would That's be my home. Hope, somewhere within the 30-mile radius of New York City? Yeah, yeah, 53rd Street. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're giving it out. Look at you. Well, are people going to track me down? Go ahead, track me down. Yeah, I, someone was saying that the other day. You know what? I want people to track me down. Yeah. I'm bored. I want my phone number, however, is five five five. One two one two. All right. Say good night, Mike. Good night, Mike. That's it. Episode fifty is in the bag, and that over the edge bonus episode is coming soon. I promise. Look for it. It's another great conversation with Mike B. Sachs. S A C K S. Email him for a chance to win an actual conversation. Very exciting. More episodes of Writer's Block are on the way. As always, thanks for listening. Say goodnight, blockheads. Mm-hmm.